You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. And now we remember the promise that Jesus made because his resurrection relates to our lives. Because you're sitting there wondering that's wonderful truth, but it always relates to us. Because Jesus told Martha when she was mourning about her brother who had been dead four days, Lazarus, He promised her, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Death is not going to be the last chapter in your life either. Do you think of your life in terms of chapters or seasons? You might be in the summer of your life or the middle chapters, or you might be coming close to the end of the book, living out your winter years. You're looking at the final chapter or the end of the year, But in today's message, Pastor Tom has a totally different idea for you. Death isn't the last chapter of your story. In fact, a whole new story begins when this life ends. You may die in the winter of your life, but the next spring will be brand new. Now here's Pastor Tom in the book of Acts chapter 2 as he continues his message, Logic on Fire, the church's first sermon. When the apostles took their stand as a group with Peter out front, and Peter was the spokesman and he was preaching the gospel, it was the resurrection he got to and talked about the most. Why? And you need to know this for your evangelism as well, your personal evangelism. When you go talking to other people, you need to never, ever forget to talk about and camp on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection was the proof Jesus was the Messiah. It was the most important sign Jesus ever performed. At one time, even though he performed a lot of signs, he said, no sign will be given this evil generation except the sign of Jonah as he was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the earth three days and three nights. I'm going to give you just one sign, he said, just one super sign, and it's going to be the resurrection, and that's all you're going to get. Well, it was good enough. It was good enough. Listen, rather than the crucifixion proving Jesus was not from God, remember the Jewish leaders that mocked him on the cross? They kept saying, if you're of God, get yourself down from the cross. Remember that? Rather than the the crucifixion proving Jesus was not really from God, the resurrection proved beyond any doubt he was not only from God, he was the son of God. Romans 1, 4, Jesus was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Rather than the death of Jesus disqualifying him from being the Messiah, as we learned last time, the resurrection makes it abundantly clear who God's man is. Nobody else is in the same stratosphere as Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody. Boast about him, brag about him. He is the greatest. To put anybody even close to the same status as Jesus is to insult Jesus Christ. Think about this. Of all the people who have ever lived on this planet, how many do you think that is? I have no idea. There's like, what, 7 billion now? So you try to think how many lived, you don't really know. Billions and billions, right? Men and women, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, all the continents. God let all of them die, except for Enoch and Elijah. He let all of them die. All of them. God's the giver of life. Here we are, suffering and struggling, and he lets all of us die. That's right. That's what God does. He lets all of us die. We all die, right? I mean, the guys are looking at me like I'm nuts. We all die, right? God kept none of them and us alive. None. 
People want to say, well, I don't think I'm a sinner. Then why is God letting you die? Think about that. God raised permanently from the dead only one life. Now, if God said nothing else, that says a lot. All the rest of you I disapprove of. His life, he pleases me. What did God say directly from the heavens without a mediator when Jesus was baptized? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I guarantee you, when I was baptized, that was not said about me. And I'm willing to bet it was not said about you. That's why we had to be washed. Boy, when he came to John the Baptist to be baptized, John the Baptist freaked out. He said, no, I should be baptized by you. And he said, permit it. We're fulfilling all righteousness this way. Just amazing. Christ is one life. Only that life pleased God. Only that life was innocent. You know, people ask all the time, why do bad things happen to good people? And there's a pretty good answer to that. And the answer is they don't. Bad things don't happen to good people. There are no good people. But what about the babies? Well, unfortunately, the babies are born into a world of sin. And um, we all are responsible for that. The only good person that a bad thing ever happened to is Jesus of Nazareth. And God refused to let that bad act stand. They killed him. That was bad. They murdered the Son of God. That's a bad thing. If you were Jesus, you could complain and say, well, what did he say on the cross? My God, my God, what? Why hast thou forsaken me? But God refused to let that stand. That was wrong. He, he would not let that stand. And so the Jews of that generation with their pompous, unteachable hearts, they took their Messiah, their king, and they nailed him to a cross. And God said, that's not right, and that's not going to stand. And he reversed it. He changed it. He brought, they killed him. God brought them back to life. They tried to do away with them. God just brought them right back. So this is not going to work. Even though it was God's predetermined plan to have Jesus nailed to the cross, it was still an evil act by men. God would not let it stand. By the way, God set a plan in motion that his son would be killed, and God himself didn't do it. He put the plan in motion, but it was the Jews who cried, crucify him, crucify him. It was the Romans who actually carried out the nailing of it. So you could say Jesus used the mediators of the Jews and and the Romans because it involved an evil act. But when it came to raising Jesus from the dead, he used no mediator at all. Uh, It's not men who raised Jesus from the dead. It's not angels who raised Jesus from the dead. Aliens did not raise Jesus from the dead. God decided to do that act directly himself. And notice Peter says the resurrection put an end to the agony of death, the pains of death, the hold of death on him. Peter explains that this was because it was impossible for death to hold the Messiah. I like that. It was impossible. Peter is personifying death here. Death's like a jailer who tried to grasp Christ's dead body in the tomb, gleefully having his long Bony fingers all around the body of Jesus, wrapped around that scourged and crucified, bleeding body, right? And he's there just putting his chest out and flexing his muscles and basking in his power and glory. Here's the supposed life giver, and I've got him now. He's mine. The Messiah's body was 
death's grand trophy to hold in his hand because death defeats all others. I heard somebody, I was reading, and I think I got this right, that Tom Brady's playoff record now is uh, 26 and 9. Not so bad. 26 wins and 9 losses. Some of you hate that. Back in the day, it was a quarterback named Bart Starr. His was uh, even a better percentage, Green Bay quarterback. Nine wins and one loss. It's very, very good. Death's record is something like 20 billion to zero. He is undefeated. Death. No wonder he's so boastful about things. He's undefeated, that is, until Jesus. Early that Sunday morning, some divine light shone from the tomb, and death began to lose his grip. Death panicked. He flexed his muscles, but then he began to scream. He tried so desperately to hang on to this body. But in a burst of divine life-giving impulse straight from the throne room of God in heaven, the giver of life, death realized this is impossible. I cannot hang on to him anymore. The heavenly power of God cast death off like it was an old garment. And then Jesus, shining in glory, emerged from the tomb, walked right out of that tomb, unaffected, unchallenged. And you can even know that the mock, the mock against death began at that moment. Paul would pick up that mock later in 1 Corinthians, and the mock is this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And there Jesus stood, the risen one. I quoted it before, but I love it. He told his good friend, John, the son of Zebedee, who saw Jesus in glory and fell at his feet as a dead man. He said, I was dead but now I'm alive forevermore. What an amazing thing. Death was defeated for the first time. In fact, he was badly beaten. He was trounced. It wasn't even close. And now we remember the promise that Jesus made because his resurrection relates to our lives. Because you're sitting there wondering, that's wonderful truth, but it always relates to us. Because Jesus told Martha when she was mourning about her brother had been dead four days, Lazarus, He promised her, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Death is not going to be the last chapter in your life either. Now, sometimes we think what he's talking about is when we die, our spirit leaves our body and we go. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about your body coming back to life. That's what happened in the tomb. His body came back to life. In 1 Corinthians 6.14, it says, God has not only raised the Lord Jesus, but will also raise us up through his power. Because he was raised, we'll be raised. Because death was not his last chapter, it's not our last chapter. That's why we're Christians. We believe this. We believe in the resurrection. We believe it's not just our soul's going to leave the body and we're going to be with Jesus. That's wonderful truth also. It's that our bodies are going to be raised from the dead, our soul and body united. We're going to have a better model of ourselves, and it's going to be glorious, and it's going to be joyous. Death did not have the ability to hang on to the Lord Jesus. Why not? Well, Peter provides the reason, and it is in the Scripture that he declares the Messiah would actually be raised from the dead. This is Old Testament. This is hundreds of years, a thousand years before Jesus' life. And the Messiah was promised to be raised from the dead, and we know the Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus himself said that. This passage that Peter is quoting from here is, is Psalm 16. A Messianic psalm, at least part of the psalm is Messianic. And he's quoting from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. The psalm was written by David. It was written after 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
We know that because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had a covenant with David and promised David through the prophet Nathan that one of David's descendants would sit on his throne and would reign forever. The more immediate fulfillment of that was Solomon, but Solomon was not the full fulfillment. There was coming another greater son of David who would come and would sit on his throne in Jerusalem and reign over Israel, indeed over the whole world forever. So the psalm itself, if you go back and read Psalm 16, we don't have time today to do that. It's about David trusting confidently in God. He's approaching a time of suffering and he's crying out to God and he says, God is at my right hand. In other words, God is right here by my side and he's my protector. He's like my bodyguard. And then in this part of the psalm, it is the Messiah who is speaking through the mouth of David. You might say David is speaking, but he's not speaking of himself. He's now speaking of his son, a future David, who will be greater than him. And he's speaking as if he is the Messiah. And because of the protection that David would have, he's kind of prefiguring this Messiah. And he could say, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Thoughts of God's goodness and God's protection brought David joy. By the way, if you want glad tidings and a joyful heart, follow Jesus. That's his point. It's not boring to follow Jesus. He also writes, his flesh will abide in hope. Flesh refers, of course, to the physical body. He knows that God is not going to abandon his body. He's not going to be abandoned. His soul is not going to be abandoned to Hades. Hades is the place of the departed dead where they go off after they die. And that term soul in Hebrew, nefesh, sometimes refers to the soul as opposed to the body, but sometimes soul can stand for the whole person, body and soul. And that's probably what he intends here to keep with the Hebrew parallelism, meaning the whole life. In other words, his life would not be abandoned to Sheol. It would not be the last thing that happened to him. Sheol in the Hebrew counterpart to Hades, it is the place of the departed dead. And it was considered both the underworld and and also the grave wherein men had to descend down into it. Actually, the New Testament translates Sheol as Hades. So body and soul went down into Sheol. The whole man went down into Sheol. It was an ominous place. There was no life there. In fact, when the Bible talks about Sheol, it talks about this place that is always hungry and always swallows up. We think of, you know, death can never be satisfied. No matter how much you feed death, uh, death just wants more. And some of the Old Testament passages speak of this Sheol as a place that swallows alive. For example, Proverbs 1.12, it's evil men speaking. It says, let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. Sheol, the pit, swallow them whole. You know, keep consuming them. They're never, you know, Sheol is never satisfied. Here's another verse, Proverbs 27.20. It says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. Gulp, gulp. They keep drinking, they keep eating, and they're never satisfied. But God would not abandon David is the point. God would not abandon David to Sheol. The verb abandon is strong. It means to leave it there, to forsake it, to abandon it. It's used, for example, in Psalm 22, 1, the uh, passage that I just mentioned, Jesus quoted from the cross. In Psalm 22, 1, it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the same term, abandoned me. No, he would not be abandoned to the grave. Now, please understand that David does not say that he himself would never die or that his life would not go down to Sheol. He's talking, but he's speaking of the future. Some have wrongly interpreted this, that David was guaranteeing that he would never die in a battle. He would, he would be preserved from dying all the way, all the way through. And that, that may be true in other Psalms and other deliverances that David gives God credit for, but that does not fit Psalm 16. 
Rather, what he is talking about is not being forsaken to Sheol's power. That leaves room for some greater deliverance out of the clutches of Sheol, you see. David goes on to write there, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. And here he's directly not talking about himself, for he's not the holy one. The holy one is the Messiah, the Hasid, the holy one. That's a messianic term in the Old Testament. It was connected to David because the Messiah was David's son, but it wasn't David. The anointed one, the Hasid, that that special one, actually in Greek it is the Hasion, the holy one, he would not see decay. His body would not undergo decay. That's the prophecy. Decay is a Hebrew term that indicates the pit or the grave where the body would lay down into and eventually it would rot and it would begin to decay. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says the Holy One will not see corruption. The Hebrew actually has the Holy One will not see the pit, but it has the same meaning because in the pit, it would see corruption. So what he's saying is this Holy One, this future son of David, will not see any decomposition of his body when he's placed into the ground, into the pit. That's the prophecy. This Holy One, this Hasid, will not decay. He will not be abandoned to that decomposition. So clearly David was not writing about himself, and Peter understands that. He was looking through himself to the future and to the Messiah. Jesus' body, when placed in the ground, though he truly died, would not begin to decay. It would not suffer any decomposition at all. He was raised from the dead, if you think about it, very quickly on the what? On the third day, why so quickly? Because of this prophecy that he, his body would not suffer any decay at all. Instead, as the psalm goes on, the path to life was made known to Christ. You have made known to me the path of life. And Jesus himself anticipated the fullness of joy, the fullness of gladness, which only comes in the glorious presence of his God. You know, we're allowed, according to uh, our documents here in this country, to pursue happiness all we want. But the truth is, the greatest happiness and joy is in the presence of God. Indeed, this indicates that the joys of heaven must be so extreme, we can't even begin to imagine them right now. In God's presence is not fullness of boredom. In God's presence is fullness of gladness and joy. Please remember that. Don't let Satan get into your head otherwise. Our resurrection from the dead, our resurrection from the dead will participate in what is happening to the Messiah where he's raised, has the path of life, and receives all the joy, the promises, because he was raised, we will be raised, we participate in all of this as well. Charles Spurgeon, in a devotion called Besides Still Waters, writes very beautifully about death's shallow victory even over us. I want to quote it to you, as only Spurgeon can write. In a while I shall slumber in the tomb, yet I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job 19, 25, and 26. My eyes, which soon will be glazed in death, will not always be closed in darkness. Death will be forced to give back its prey. I see death, and it has the bodies of the just locked in its dungeons. It has sealed their tombs and marked them for its own. Oh, death, foolish death, 
Your caskets will be ceased and your storehouses broken open. The morning is come. Christ has descended. I hear the trumpets. Awake, awake. From the tomb, the righteous spring and death sits in confusion and howls in vain for its empire is deprived of its subjects. Death will not keep one bone of the righteous, not a particle of their dust, not a hair of their heads. Christ has purchased every part of our bodies. The whole body will be complete and united forever in heaven with the glorified soul. Amen. That is our future, beloved, and don't you forget it. And he quotes this psalm, and Peter now comes to the focal point of his argument that he's making in the entire sermon in verses 29 to 32. He interprets the meaning of Psalm 16. And by the way, good preachers are always interpreting the meaning of the text, right? That's what Peter is doing. He's interpreting the meaning of Psalm 16. He's a good expositor here. At issue is the question, did David mean himself when he wrote that psalm? Did David speak of himself or did he speak of somebody else? Well, David is writing in the first person singular, but that's true of all the prophetic passages in the Old Testament. So was he writing of himself or was he writing of somebody else? Now, Peter, focus on verse 29. He makes the point, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David. Remember, David lived a thousand years before uh, Peter, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Wow, a thousand years later, they could still visit the tomb of David. David's body did die. David's body was buried. David's body did see corruption. So much so that his tomb was well known and they could visit his tomb anytime a thousand years later. So David could not have been writing about himself. Peter rightly interprets the Old Testament text that the Holy One is not David, but the son of David. Some son, some greater son who is coming in the future. Jesus of Nazareth is that son. Paul interpreted it the same way later in the book of Acts, chapter 13 and verse 36. Paul says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. That's a euphemism for dying as a believer. Fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. David decayed, David died, David did not get resurrected from the dead. As great as David was, David was not the Holy One, and David himself knew he was not the Holy One. The lesser David, that is, King David of the Old Testament, wrote of the greater David, the son of David, whom even Psalm 110 would pick up, and David would realize that son is so great, he calls his own son, do you remember? Lord. And Jesus used this in his debates with the teachers in the temple on the week that he was crucified. And he said, he asked those leaders, whose son is the Messiah? And they all said, David's son. And Jesus said, if he's David's son, why does he call him Lord? And the answer is because that son of David was more than another human being. That son of David was God in human flesh. Keep in mind, David was promised that his son would be the Messiah. Psalm 132, verse 11, for example, it says, The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. Someone would come from his loins eventually, and God would take him and set him on his throne. 
Also, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 16, your house, talking to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me, God is talking, forever. Your throne shall be established forever. David knew that. David knew that God had sworn to him with an oath. God made an oath. God swore to David with an oath. This is guaranteed. I mean, when God says something, it's true. When God swears it with an oath, I mean, where do you put that? That's going to happen. Everyone else in history died and stayed dead until Jesus Christ. He died, but he did not remain in the grave. In today's message, Pastor Tom showed us first that the resurrection of Christ is the cornerstone of our faith, and secondly, that his resurrection is directly related to our own lives. Because he is raised, you and I will be raised as well. Death will not be the final chapter in your life because of him. We're so glad you joined us today on Discover Hope. We'd like to meet you. So if you're in the area, come visit us at Hope Bible Church. Our Sunday mornings include Bible classes at 9.30 a.m., followed by a worship service at 11 a.m. You can find out more at hopebible.org or give us a call at 443-200-HOPE. That's 443-200-HOPE. We'd also like to invite you to join us in bringing the kingdom of God and the joy of salvation to our listeners by becoming a financial partner of Discover Hope. Find out more under the giving tab at hopebible.org. Join us next time as Pastor Tom shows us everything that Christ's resurrection means for your life. Death is ultimately the loser, and all its captives will be freed. Everything that is connected to the resurrection of Christ will last forever. That's truly the only thing that matters, the only thing that continues past the grave. Everything you do on this earth matters because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of Discover Hope. You can listen to more messages from this and other books of the Bible by visiting HopeBibleChurch.org. And be sure to join us again right here on Discover Hope.